This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of February the 6th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Amy Brown is the founder and CEO of one of the hottest technology firms in Indiana. Despite the national slowdown in venture capital funding in 2022, her Indianapolis-based company, named Authentics, raised $20 million just before the end of the year. That's almost $30 million total since Brown founded the firm in 2018, which speaks to investor confidence in the idea behind Authentics, as well as the management team's ability to execute. It's probably not a stretch to say that investors are impressed specifically with Brown, despite the fact she took a very unusual route to becoming a first-time entrepreneur in her early 40s. As an undergrad at IU, she earned a bachelor's degree in human development and family studies. She then earned a master's of social work in policy and program administration. She had several jobs with a focus on healthcare policy and health insurance programs, Before deciding to take the leap to create Authentics, she was the chief operating officer for a Carmel-based travel insurance firm. But it was there that the idea for Authentics took shape, a company that could collect all of the feedback that healthcare companies get from their clients and suss out major weaknesses in the customer experience. The healthcare companies, such as pharmaceutical firms or insurers or healthcare providers, could then use all of the data about their customers and their concerns to improve the bottom line. In this week's edition of the podcast, Amy Brown discusses what it took to bootstrap Authentics and get it off the ground, including her desire to inspire her four children. She also sheds light on the experience of persuading venture capitalists to invest in Authentics, including one distinction in her presentations that she said was invaluable. Here's our conversation. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Amy Brown, founder and CEO of Authentics. Hey, thank you for making time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Mason. So I am not an entrepreneur. I am trying to imagine myself as a first-time entrepreneur whose company has, has just received a $20 million round of venture funding and $30 million over the last five years. What does that feel like? <laughs> oh, I laugh because it's 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 not one thing, it's a thousand things. It feels affirming, it feels scary, it feels like a, a large responsibility. It feels like you know, I've been asked to be a good steward of not only capital but of the humans that you know, we, that work with us and the, that we're serving. So it's, it's a lot yet. I feel, I feel really excited to be at this moment in my journey. When you find out that, you know, the money is coming in, is that initially just like a big relief followed <laughs> by the crushing pressure of expectations? I mean, mm. you can at least have like a decent holiday. Yeah. So I shared with the investors as the investors that were a part of the syndicate that like we all needed to have a good holiday. So the pressure was on for all of us to come to a close before the holiday. And 
um, on December 20th, it happened. It, that was our close date. And I certainly was grateful to be able to enter the holiday season with my children, not you know having that particular uh, weight uh, on my brain. That said, I, I'm not a person that you know, closes around and spends weeks, you know, giving high fives and champagne toasts. I mean, we go right back to work. There's a a lot we need to do with that capital. And so um, it was a a short breather, but uh, I really welcomed the timing of the close this time around. Give me just a a very like sketchy idea, at least of like what now changes? What is now on the whiteboard that wasn't on there five months ago? Well, with this capital, we're able to scale our business to a, a new level. And you know, as a as a founder, I can look back pre-series seed, then series seed, then series A and series B. And it's pretty um, you can see the progression of the business and how at different stages the the expectations of what a business is accomplishing is, you know, different, hence the bigger check sizes, et cetera. So What's different for us is, first of all, we are going to deploy a significant amount of this capital on sales and marketing. You know, post Series A, you know, back in early 2021, it was all about just building a team of of people. We didn't have any sales professionals at that time besides myself and one other person. And so once we had kind of a founding team, we were trying to figure out messaging. We were trying to figure out our go-to-market strategy. Well, you know, between series A and B, we did that. We spent a lot of time dialing that in. And so now it's about pouring gas on the fire. You know, we figured it out. Now we need to really deploy resources to make sure we're known, uh, you know, in our market, our target market. And so that's a big part of what's different is our team is bigger. And from an engineering perspective, we've had a few years now of really studying the space and understanding what our customers want. And we have an opportunity to keep leading and defining the future of conversational intelligence. And so we've got a vision and we're going to hire additional machine learning engineers to help us continue to realize that vision. So this would be a good time to quickly explain in simple terms as possible what Authentics does. And imagine I am your youngest child and you are explaining why the world needs this company. What do you do? Okay, Mason, you know how sometimes you've had to call a 1-800 line or customer service, right? For something you've bought or a service that you've received. Do you remember when you've made that phone call hearing a little automated message that says this call may be recorded for quality and monitoring purposes? All the time. Okay. Have you ever wondered, what do they do with that recording? (laughs) Okay. Are they really listening to this? Who's listening to this, right? So what we do at Authentics is we take in those recordings by the millions every month into our software platform and we use machine learning, AI, to listen for themes at that macro level across all of those um, conversations. Because what the leaders at these healthcare companies that we serve want to know is, where are the problems? Why are people calling us? What do they need? What do they want? How do we retain them as customers? What's driving them crazy? What are they saying about our competition? 
And that's what we do. We help leaders listen at scale with kind of this macro set of ears. And we also give them a way using technology, leveraging technology to listen to the literal voice of their customer. Um, They can drill in if they see a big problem in their business. Wow, customers are really frustrated and complaining about this particular area of our business. They can go into our platform and listen to examples of, of customer voices that have called their customer service line and complained. And it helps leaders really start to feel and empathize uh, with their customers in a very tech forward way. Yeah, so what kinds of, of companies would your clients be? Yes. So we serve uh, fairly large enterprises, very large enterprises. Um, we work with pharmaceutical manufacturers. We work with large health insurance companies, and we work with uh, health and hospital systems all across the country. Before Authentics came along or any similar companies of their art, what did they do with those recordings? Did, I mean, was there a human being you know, somewhere in the world that was just listening to them and writing stuff down on a sheet of paper? Yeah, well, I actually know from experience because prior to starting Authentics, I ran call centers for health insurance companies for 20 years. And we mostly stored and ignored those conversations, really, by the by the majority of them. There's regulatory reasons why we'd have to store them for a long period of time. And what I learned as a business leader in healthcare is that, man, these conversations like the more I listened to them, the more I realized that there were really interesting issues and perceptions that were expressed by our customers. And no one on the leadership team was really tuned in to that, right? And so, yes, I had a quality team of analysts who were listening to a very small subset of interactions, and they were really focused on the call center agent side of the conversation, you know, focused on whether they were doing a good job servicing that customer in that one interaction. But what was being missed was the forest view, you know, for the trees. It was it was zooming out and looking at all that data together. And so, you know, a, as an operations leader, I really saw the opportunity for us to transform from being a cost center to being an insight center for the enterprise. And that's really what I wanted to do when I started Authentics. That was the vision. Uh, before we started the interview, I asked you how many employees you had. And I think you said it was about 90. You're based in Indianapolis. Yes. Uh, how many of those live in Indianapolis? About three quarters live in and around Indianapolis, and the remaining are distributed you know, in other parts of the U.S. And how many would you expect to hire, I don't know, in the next two or three years? Oh, well, this year we have a plan to hire probably between 20 and 30 more, and then you know, two or three years. I know we have pretty ambitious goals. I can see us having you know, 250, 500 employees in a, a few years. Now, here's the thing that I find uh, extraordinary about your story specifically, especially as someone like myself who is notoriously risk averse. So as of early 2018, you had a C-suite job at a travel insurance company, like a secure industry, you're always going to need insurance. Uh, You are in, at that point, your early 40s, you're married, you have four young children, and you decide, I need to start my own company. Although it has a very strong technical component, and I am not a professional technology worker. 
How did you persuade yourself to do that? <laughs> yeah, when you put it like that, man, I'm crazy, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. I mean, this is how great things happen. But you know, I've I've always had trouble understanding how people you know motivate themselves to take a big risk. I mean, I think I came to a stage in my life where I transitioned from wanting to compete towards other people's expectations of what, you know, a textbook healthy career looked like. And I I wanted to start living on my own terms. And I had four kids and I would tell them all the time, you can be whatever you want to be. You need to hone in on what you're passionate about and you can do anything you want to do. And I just started to feel like a hypocrite if I wasn't going to demonstrate you know, what that really looked like. And I I think as a parent, as a younger parent, there was a phase in my life where I felt like my job was to keep them secure, you know, but then I realized that security doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they never have to understand what sacrifice means. Security might mean demonstrating what building self-esteem and confidence really looks like in practice. And, you know, I just took a really hard look in the mirror and I said, I've got to do this. I I want to do it. I'm passionate about it. I'm experienced enough now to do it. And life is too short. <laughs> life is too short. What did you think with the best case scenario five years down the line? You're thinking, okay, end of the year 2022, you know, what what can I reasonably expect? I mean, the truth is I had no idea. I I had no idea that I'd be where we are today. I mean, I had a dream to transform how corporate America listened to their customers. um, And I believed in that vision. But I I just have never been a person that said, hey, my five-year plan is to have, you know, X number of employees and be at, you know, X amount in revenue. Uh, Just because for me, it was about putting one foot in front of the other. So my first goal was, I've got to figure out how to sell this thing as quickly as possible. So I used my savings. I built out on a low-code platform, just a prototype, and I got to work hustling, <laughs> trying to like trying to sell the idea to a few paying customers. And from there, learned. I learned, you know, what was sticking, what wasn't sticking, what did we need to do to make the product uh, more effective and you know, it was, it was an act of iteration, experimentation. And I found that kind of keeping your, your head set on the few steps in front of you allowed me to manage the anxiety of the overwhelming mountain that I was climbing. Right. Mm -hmm. So you were bootstrapping for about how long? About 12 to 18 months in the right around that period of time, it was still pre COVID I was starting to think about raising a seed round. And in the early parts of that process, I received a couple of angel investor checks that ended up getting rolled into a priced round with a a VC firm. And so, yeah, 12 to 18 months, I was bootstrapping and then then we got our first round of capital. And this is on, on your dime. This was on your savings. Yes. I mean, I... I told my husband six months before we we I quit my job. I said, "Hey, we're going to do this." And so we started 
moving some things around with our life and saving money. And um, I saved enough that I knew we could pay our bills for, you know, for about a year. So I I know that uh, smart venture capitalists, I mean, they're interested in the idea, but they're sometimes even more interested in the effectiveness of the management team. And, and if you look at your resume, it's it's a little bit different from like a typical tech entrepreneur. Um, you didn't have an MBA. You didn't have a degree related to technology. You didn't come out of an entrepreneurship accelerator somewhere. What were they interested in knowing from you and, and trying to vet you as a manager? Yes. I mean, I think investors want to know your appetite for hard work, your appetite for making tough decisions and good judgment calls. They want to know that you know the market that you're selling into. They want to believe that you have all the makings of someone who can can move quickly, execute effectively, and sell this thing quickly, you know? And I I think what really helped me was the fact that I knew the buyer because I used to be the buyer. And that was very helpful for investors. It was a it was a comforting feeling to investors uh, to know that I knew that I knew that space. I also, without having any funding, I had some pretty significant clients already paying. So I had some revenue before I ever raised any money, and that was extremely helpful. And that's I would I would tell any entrepreneur like the best way to get funding is to get a few paying customers before you need the funding uh, oh, because okay. having traction having traction before raising money is extremely helpful. So you've already got the proof of concept. I mean, you have customers that they can talk to. I would assume exactly. Yeah, um, and seeing everything in action. That's great. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IVJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IPJ Podcast and my interview with Amy Brown, founder and CEO of Authentics. Let me go back to college real quick. Tell me if I'm right. You have a bachelor's degree in human development and family studies at IU. Yes. I think then you went immediately into grad school and got a master's of social work for policy and program administration from IU. What were you planning to do with those degrees? Well, my dad was a physician and I originally thought I might follow in his footsteps and and do something clinical. And then I got into school and started doing the clinical things. And I was like, "Eh, yeah, I don't think this is for me. Um, But what I did start to really gravitate towards were macro impacts of our healthcare system. And so when I was uh, you know, going through my master's degree, I just became really fascinated with systems of care and the impact of the healthcare system on our health. 
you know, my, my internships in grad school were at state of Indiana. And that was where my first job ended up being right after grad school. And I learned a ton and got to see things from a macro view. And so then when I went into the private sector and, you know, was really serving as an operator in the healthcare system, I got to see it from that vantage point. And I got to see the impacts of our work on our patients, our customers. You know, I I think there's a lot of attention that's been spent over the last few decades on the health of uh, American consumers, the clinical medical uh, side of things. What has been less studied is the impact of the system itself and all of its complexity on our society, on our ability to even access care. And that's what I could see from studying this conversational data was just how impactful our system is on human beings' ability to get better or have a healthy life. Okay. I'm going to ask you more about that, but let me back up a little bit. Uh, the 2016, you became chief operating officer for this travel insurance company, Seven Corners. Uh, the company had been around since 1993, but you took on what I think you could argue was an entrepreneurial role since Seven Corners was going through a major restructuring. And one thing that I think is relevant is that one of the company's goals was to pay more attention to feedback from customers, uh, many of whom were upset with poor customer service. Am I correct to make a little bit of a connection there between what Seven Corners was doing at the time and the idea uh, behind Authentics of uh, doing a better job of listening to customers? Yes. Well, one of the reasons I was brought in as their chief operating officer was my focus on customer experience. And, you know, the owners of Seven Corners really wanted me to focus on improving the customer journey and, you know, customer feedback. And at that time, we had a survey program in place where, you know, we surveyed our customers to ask how they felt about um, the company. But my role was to manage the claim system, the medical management team, and the call center, the, the customer service call center. And I could just see that we could learn a whole lot from these conversations about how we were doing. And yeah, I, I I began to really think about the idea of authentics while I was in that role because I I could see the possibilities of really replacing this kind of dependence on surveys to actually listening to the everyday conversations that people are giving unsolicited unsolicited feedback all the time. And if we just tapped into that, which we already owned, um, we could you know, probably learn a lot more than we might from a, a handful of survey responses. Yeah, that's that's really consistent with my experience. You know, having uh, probably the normal amount of encounters with the healthcare system uh, that that you would when you're in your mid fifties. When I get presented with a survey, it is annoying, and I feel beholden. You know, because I want to help, but um, I mean, I don't think I ever give a very good feedback. But if someone to ask was to ask me, I mean, what is what was really the worst part of your experience? Then I could just talk about it for a couple of minutes. Um, I would have mm-hmm. totally different feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it makes sense well, to, you know, to open people up to that. That's right. Well, pe- when people call a billing helpline or their nurse, you know, at their doctor's office, or they're calling to schedule an appointment, or they're receiving a call after being discharged from a outpatient surgery. You know, these these interactions that are happening 
many, many times are recorded for multiple reasons. And it's in those natural organic conversations where people open up to the human on the other side of the the phone. And that's where you can learn the deepest insights. Why is the healthcare industry so bad at listening to patients and other <laughs> consumers? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, we've just made it so very, very complex. You know, there's disparate systems, disparate teams, patient data resides in different places within organizations. And then if you zoom outside of maybe an individual company and zoom up and you're looking at the healthcare system as a whole, you've got the pharmaceutical side of things, you've got the insurance side of things, you have the hospital and, and provider, you know, physician side of things. And they all have their own ways of communicating. They have their own rules, their own forms, their own requirements, and they have to work with each other. But, you know, when IU Health talks to Anthem, you know, it's one set of rules. When IU Health talks to United Healthcare, it's a different set of rules. And it's it's that type of phenomenon that just makes it so very hard for these systems these verticals within the healthcare system to efficiently get stuff done. And therefore, all of that complexity trickles down to the individual healthcare consumer. And it's just so very challenging to understand it. The language is complex and overly filled with industry jargon. And it's just hard. It's hard for the everyday person (laughs) to navigate this system. Is there also just... I don't know if this is the correct term, uh, confirmation bias in the, in the, in this data collection process where people are basically only asking about things they want to hear about. Absolutely. So, you know, when systems are trying to get in touch with their customers, um, and ask them questions to me, it, it feels rather selfish, right? You're, you're asking what you need to know, what you want to know from a, from a business perspective, And the importance of listening to unsolicited conversations and unsolicited feedback is you're getting to hear what's top of mind for the customer, for the consumer. And that's really important to hear it in their words and what's important to them. This might be a little bit of a personal question. You can decide if you want to answer it or not. And we all have stories about how we felt like we've been treated unfairly in the healthcare system or just impersonally. Did you have any that animated you at all in this direction? This isn't something that really was my own personal health story, but I've certainly watched my loved ones uh, go through, you know, really significant health challenges. And while they're trying to heal or while they're dealing with both physical and mental health crises, they're also getting confusing bills. They're getting calls they're trying to justify for their health insurance company why they need treatment. They're spending hours on the phone, hours on websites, trying to get answers or trying to to justify, you know, the care they need. And it's just ex- excruciatingly taxing uh, for your loved one, and it just makes no sense. And at the same time, you know, I've worked in healthcare policy. I've been on the side of trying to create policy and and work with the legislative and executive branches of government. And 
there's just such a disconnect between the outcomes we all desire from a healthcare system and what reality is. And, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves on having excellent care in this country. And yet when you, when you look at the studies, the studies would suggest that, you know, when compared to other wealthy nations, we have um, a much more expensive healthcare system and we have lower performance from a health equity and, and health outcomes perspective. So we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and figure out how do we make this better? So it sounds like your background, uh, I mean, going back a couple of decades in, in social work and public policy was a useful preparation. For it the- absolutely was. Yeah, it was. It was useful in a couple of ways. First was truly to understand the industry and to have a perspective and an opinion, you know, on on the industry, it was helpful to um, have studied it and then gone and worked in the healthcare space. Having a social work degree and this business experience has also been really helpful in understanding human beings. And I don't just mean, you know, health consumers because that's the business we're in. I mean, understanding leadership, understanding how to lead teams of individuals, how to inspire, how to deal with conflict. All of that has been extremely extremely informative as I've tried to build a company very quickly. So if I was uh, manning a helpline for the employees of Authentics, uh, what is the thing that you you think uh, you guys need to be doing better or you need to be doing better? Hmm. What a great question. I think that, you know, when, when you're growing a company very rapidly, you're, you're hiring dozens of people, you know, in, a particular quarter and you're doing this quarter over quarter, it's so easy to lose visibility as a leader of, you know, how your people are doing. And it's, it's very challenging to keep the cultural values that you started the company with going. It's it to proliferate them. And as you grow, you have to build capacity in others to carry forward the culture and the values you're looking to build. And while we've been intentional about it, we've made mistakes along the way and we're constantly learning how, how do we keep our mission front and uh, center while also uh, achieving, you know, the business results that we're expected to achieve and that we we believe we can achieve and how do you do both and, right? At the same time and uh that's an ongoing puzzle, uh one that I embrace, but it's it's very challenging. I know that I mean we it seems like we constantly write about companies that grow and one of the challenges they have internally is maintaining the culture that they've become accustomed to and they like to identify themselves with. I mean, is that something that's on your radar? Yes, it is. I mean, you know, the the, the few people who started in the business, you know, four years ago when it's, it's you against the world, <laughs> you know, it, there's a, a certain camaraderie and a, you, you know, you're, you're working out of a war room together every day and the exhilaration is just so palpable because, you know, it's kind of do or die. And as you grow and there's more people that join, um, 
you know, there's more complexity, there's more reliance on others to uh, spread the the cultural vibe. And, you know, it just gets more challenging, more people involved to, to do that. Um, and yet, and yet I believe it's so very, very important. And so I do devote time every week uh, to talking with the company. I record a every Monday morning video where most of the time I'm talking about culture and uh, there's a, several other ways that I try to connect on a very um, real and authentic way with the team just to try to kind of keep our culture front and center. Well, I know we're going to continue to follow Authentics uh, as you grow. So I look forward to hearing more about it. Maybe we'll check back in uh, about a year and see how things are going. Sounds great. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. Well, thank you. My thanks again to Amy Brown. And just a heads up, she will be one of our panelists at IBJ's Technology Power Breakfast on February 15th at the Hyatt Indianapolis. You can find more information about this event at ibj.com slash events. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest edition of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, compensation has long been a taboo topic around most water coolers. But that's changing as more states are forcing companies to disclose salaries. Susan Orr explains how firms in Indiana are getting caught up in this wave of transparency. Also in this week's issue, Peter Blanchard reports that legislators are considering diverting some $6 million in state and local tax revenue annually to state-certified technology parks. And Daniel Bradley has the story behind Westfield-based Sagility which is pursuing its deceased founder's dream of creating an international chain of high-tech soccer training facilities. You can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you are a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. It now works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Mm